You're listening to Plenary Session. In this week's Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. We're going to talk about a few things. First, we're going to talk about H. Gilbert Welsh's Wikipedia page, and I'm going to ask you to make it right. Next, I'm going to talk about a very interesting conversation on Twitter about NGS results. The NGS test said this was an EGFR mutation lung cancer. That was the easy part. But did it also have an NRAS mutation? And if so, what does that mean? And we'll talk about what many oncologists thought, how to interpret those test results, and what the differences in those interpretation has to do with the testing itself. Finally, I'm going to talk about the gem of a paper by Federico and colleagues called Assessment of Pregabalin Post-Approval Trials and the Suggestion of Efficacy for New Indications, a Systematic Review. This is a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine by the group run by Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman from McGill University, and it proves to be a gem of a paper. Finally, I'm going to have an interview with Dr. Sam Edwards. He's an assistant professor of medicine here at OHSU and the VA. He's a practicing general internist. He's an internist researcher. And he's going to talk about the NEJM paper beyond evidence-based medicine. Because as we all know, it's time to move beyond evidence-based medicine. When you master something, you move beyond it. But we're going to take that paper to task. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. The first topic I want to discuss on today's podcast is H. Gilbert Welch. Recently, I wanted to look up a paper by Gil Welch that I had read a few years ago. And as I looked for it, I stumbled across Dr. Welch's Wikipedia page. And the first paragraph of that Wikipedia page caught my attention. So let me read it to you. H. Gilbert Welsh is an American academic physician and cancer researcher. He was an internist at the Veterans Administration Medical Center at the White River Junction, Vermont, as well as professor of medicine at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. In September 2018, Welsh resigned from Dartmouth College because of a research misconduct investigation at Dartmouth that concluded he engaged in plagiarism. That was the first paragraph, and then it moves to education, career, research, views on early detection, lists his books. It just struck me that that is how we summarize Dr. Welch in three sentences. I think a couple of things. First, let's mention very briefly that, um, you know, in this this episode, I don't want to weigh in on the research misconduct charge. I think there are a few of us who have had the chance to see the New England Journal paper and also the figure by Samir Soneji that was thought to be the inspiration for the paper. I think even fewer of us, and I'm not in this group, but even fewer of us have had access to read both papers side by side, which were submitted in a row to the New England Journal of Medicine. That's a, that's a smaller group. And you know, I think if somebody wanted to come on this podcast and ask me my opinion about all that, I'm happy to talk about it. But that's not, you know, for the purpose of this comment, let's just say, let's take the worst case scenario and let's just concede that that's true that there was this allegation that it was accurately found to be plagiarism. Let's just concede that that's true. 
even if you concede that that's true, is this a fair way to summarize Gil Welch's career? I ask myself. That's That was my first thought. Let me talk about Gil Welch. Um, Gil Welch has been an assistant professor since 1990. So we're talking about several decades of work. And during his time, he has picked a couple issues that meant, I think, a great deal to him um, and a great deal to a lot of other people, which is how reliable is this entire narrative that the earlier you find a disease, the more of a disease you find that you inevitably and inexorably make people better off. That was sort of the central philosophical question that Gil Welch tackled. And when he, when he started doing that work, I think the profession had a very strong opinion that that was indisputable. And there are still some people out there who believe it is indisputable, that the more you identify a disease process, the earlier you identify it, you will make people better off and the more you act upon it. In fact, that is believed so fervently in some quarters that they believe there should be no discussion around those topics, that there should be no shared decision-making, that we should merely enforce those policies that find more disease early and often, to prescribe medications sooner rather than later. The problem with that philosophy is that there are some cases where that works, but there are also some cases where that may not work, where you may be finding something that looks like a disease process that was not going to progress or move forward in the way you thought, where you subject someone to the risks of treatment, but that person was not going to have the harm of the disease, and the net result is you harm some people. Okay, that's what we've learned over the last few decades. Gil Welch has published hundreds of papers. He's published at least three books that I've read. And what is his work sought to do? It's sought to move the professional opinion from this feeling of just total certainty to the current state we're in now where we can at least even have a debate. You know, when I started in this field, not that long ago, you could not even really have a debate about mammographic screening and PSA screening. The profession felt so strongly that this was something that must be just enforced and not really discussed. And in fact, many of our professional metrics said what percent of your patients had had mammograms who were of age, and you would get reminders at certain clinics to screen this patient for PSA. And it wasn't really discussion, as I've talked about on this podcast, and I feel like we were just trying to engage in empty persuasion, which is what Barry Kramer called it. Gil Welch has published some books, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Maybe Not, and Here's Why, Overdiagnosis, Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health, Less Medicine, More Health, Seven Assumptions That Drive Too Much Medical Care, um, and hundreds of articles and op-eds, because Gil Welch wasn't one of those academics who believed that publication was meant only for the chosen few. He felt it was his duty to engage with the public on these issues. He, to my knowledge, coined the metaphor of rabbits, turtles, and birds to describe the different types of cancer and why screening you know, may help the rabbits but will harm the turtles and you know, may miss the birds altogether. Um, so when I read his Wikipedia page and I see, you know, Gil Welch is an academic physician. He's an internist at the VA, professor of medicine at Dartmouth. In 2018, he resigned for a plagiarism charge. I felt like it was a little bit unfair because whether or not you, you know, think he did engage in the final act of plagiarism, to allow that one instance to define a career that 
moved a profession so so far from such certainty to a feeling of ambiguousness and discussion um and it wasn't it wasn't easy it certainly must not have been easy for him he was under constant fire from proponents of mammography and PSA screening and thyroid cancer screening etc cetera, etc cetera. um for most of his career uh, i think it's a bit unfair and if anyone is good at wikipedia and understands how it works i urge you to go on wikipedia and to make it more balanced i don't think that somebody should be defined by one event after 30 years um, when those 30 years should count a great deal so those are just uh just something that came into my mind um and maybe maybe some listeners of plenary session podcast can correct that injustice Okay, the next thing I wanted to talk about is a tweet. This is a tweet by an oncologist who I believe is based in India. Will a coexisting NRAS G12V mutation affect the response of gefitinib and exon 19 deletion lung cancer? And colorectal cancer, RAS mutation precludes the use of EGFR inhibition or EGFR targeted therapy. And that was a very provocative question posed by this oncologist on Twitter. And it led to a very long series of comments. And I kind of want to take you through some of these comments because I think they are really illustrative of a point when it comes to the widespread use of broad panel or whole exome sequencing of every cancer patient, which is something that many people believe we're already uh, ready for, while others of us want to see more validation. So here's some of the comments. one expert in lung cancer writes, uh, it's not the same as in colorectal cancer, but I have seen limited data to suggest that patients with coincident mutation along with activating EGFR mutation may have shorter duration of response. Another person comments, agree, here's a small series documenting just that. Less homogenous tumors do worse in the EGFR mutant space, but I wouldn't withhold TKI. Uh, the person asks again, but given the inferior response rates due to single agent erlotinib, are there lesser homogenous tumors a better candidate for combination chemotherapy? Um, then uh, a lung cancer expert called the whole the whole premise into question. I am worried that the variant call on the tumor for NRAS is incorrect. Um, you shouldn't have NRAS concurrent with EGFR mutation in the same tumor type, and that's something that we were all taught, that RAS, EGFR, and ALK are mutually exclusive. Also, in non-small cell lung cancer, RAS mutation is generally q 61X, lots of atypical things make me concerned that testing had issues here. And then this person says, well, look, the test was performed using Oncomime Focus Assay on Thermo Fisher Ion Torrent S5 equipment with the Ion 540 chip. EGFR, he gives a variant allele frequency, it's pathogenic at 89%. The NRAS variant allele frequency was 4%, pathogenic score was 0.92. The variant allele frequency is low, but the data looks clean, and here's a visual picture of that data. Well, I'm not sure, this person responds, I'm not sure the NRAS is relevant to tumor biology here. You can repeat if needed, but I would treat based on EGF variant call alone based on this. If NRAS is real on confirmation, and it will be shocking if so, we don't have any data to treat differently in non-small cell lung cancer. And then another person comments, well, yes, the NRAS mutation will likely drive resistance, but it's still worth a try of EGFR inhibition with close monitoring. Recently, I had seen a patient with NRAS driving early ALK resistance to frontline electinib. Uh, Then a discussion spun out saying, well, you know, maybe this is just unmasking some clonal hematopoiesis if this is circulating cell-free DNA. I wouldn't be surprised if the bone marrow was, it was bone marrow that you really found and that this was, um, you know, very lowly in frequency. Somebody says, well, just because it's tumor tissue doesn't mean it's chip, of course. Uh, And they go on. Oh, 
another oncologist comments, well, who knows? There may be undetected melanoma cells with NRAS mutation there. And then a few more comments. Dr. Kuzrock from University of California, San Diego, a vocal proponent of sequencing early and often, says, as, as yet unpublished data indicate that RAS mutations confer resistance to EGFR and ERB2-based treatments, exception in approximately 10% of patients. So this person is, is cautious. Then I thought Jack West had something interesting to say. Great discussion, but I'm concerned these issues are so complex that the vast majority of people trying to interpret and act on these NGS reports won't have such expertise and will just cobble together their own interpretation and follow a list of treatments and trials from a 70-page report. I don't think that the potential for getting an unclear result is a reason not to test. It's a reason to refer, though. We don't avoid CTs if, because we find incidentalomas all the time, and we have to deal with that. This is NGS for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. We're looking for seven markers. NGS is reasonable. Somebody says, I completely agree. We need stronger collaboration with mycopathology and research colleagues. Jack West fires back. We rightly scorn the marketing of protons, implying the possibility of better outcomes without data. Let's not follow the same path with NGS interpretation. With no evidence showing better outcomes, self-proclaimed expert interpretation remains a black art. Disagree? I'd welcome perspective data. Uh, great comment. Um, are you saying NGS is not okay? Reductio ad absurdum, says Jack. NGS is appropriate, though we must bear in mind that no improvement in clinical outcomes has yet been shown. It's just more efficient and cost-effective than testing for greater than four targets, but there may have been real harms from misinterpretation. So, what's going on here? When you perform broad-scale genomic testing, you will find many situations like this, and um, you won't have a situation like this where many Physicians who see primarily lung cancer and don't see other tumor types are discussing intricacies like variant allele frequency and the possibility of actually having sequenced some other piece of DNA or some other cell target um, uh, that is not from the, the tumor in question. Um, you won't have people quick to cite, you know, retrospective study from China showing concurrent mutations of worse outcomes. You won't have Dr. Kuzrock tossing in the fact that she has unpublished data showing that these patients tend not to do well with EGFR inhibitory therapy. You will have some oncologists out there who hold up a cartoon of the EGFR signaling pathway and note astutely that RAS is downstream, and, and that's why we don't use EGFR-directed therapy in colon cancer for RAS mutations, and they may extrapolate that to lung cancer. And you may have other people do the opposite. What's the problem here? The problem with this testing the reason I've repeatedly said that you need to do a randomized trial to show proof of clinical benefit before you move forward is one of the things that trying to do a randomized trial will force you to do is it will force you to reach some standardized treatment algorithms. How should this be managed? There is little value for running an elaborate test is if you give the test results to 100 oncologists and they all make different treatment decisions as a result of that test. If the test is interpreted like a Rorschach test, there is little value in running the test. The test has to be interpreted in a way that is consistent. And then you have to ask if that consistent interpretation is superior to the current standard of care of not having that information. That's how you leverage better improved outcomes. It would be implausible to run a randomized trial of one intervention versus another intervention when when the other intervention is a test result, that the same test result is interpreted wildly differently by different physicians. And yet, that is what you see a hint of here in this case report online. It's not reassuring. 
it is deeply concerning. And it is so easy to try to brush this aside and say, you know, we, we don't ask that every CT scan shows improved outcomes. Um, this is a little bit different than that. This is a test that's run that directly pairs you with therapy. The next paper I want to talk about is Assessment of Pregabalin Post-Approval Trials and the Suggestion of Efficacy for New Indications, a Systematic Review by Federico and colleagues. This is uh, the group of researchers that is um, led by Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman in McGill University. So I've always said that I think Jonathan Kimmelman is doing some of the most conceptually interesting work in biomedicine. And here, um, they're at it again. Uh, this is a paper that maps one drug, Lyrica. Lyrica is a blockbuster drug and makes a lot of money and was first approved in 2004 in Europe and the United States for some neuropathic pain conditions and adjunctive therapy for partial onset seizures. So that was the first approval. But those of us who practiced had seen people use Lyrica for all sorts of things, from alcohol dependence to restless leg syndrome to you name it. It's been used for many, many different conditions. Conditions that tend to have um, perhaps relapsing, remitting states uh, or subjective endpoints. Um, and the basis for this use in many conditions, some of us noted, um, if you actually went to look up the data for some of these things, it was very weak. I mean, it was some uncontrolled, um, small study that you would never hang your hat on and that, you know, some people call these kind of hypothesis generating, but they're often so poorly done that they, they do nothing more to generate the hypothesis than merely, you know, the idea to run such a study. They don't advance it philosophically at all. They are poor quality studies. Um, they tell you nothing. Uh, they are um, pretty much worthless. Um, Kibbelman and colleagues are correct to call them exploratory trials. They're, um, they're a, little bit, um, a little bit more polite than I am. So what do they note here? What they do in this paper is very clever. They map the entire research agenda for pregabalin, and they show trials year by year and what they show is that at the very beginning, from 2001 to 2004, there was a number of indications that Lyrica, pregabalin, uh, was tried in. And the number of trials that were exploratory, that uncontrolled kind of studies that are thought to provide information versus confirmatory, randomized, double-blind studies, um, these were broadly similar, that the industry was running mostly double-blind, randomized studies, uh, confirmatory studies. Um, and that makes sense because before a drug is approved, they have every incentive to do the right study um, because the FDA won't approve the drug with the wrong study, or at least once upon a time they wouldn't approve the drug with the wrong study. Who knows these days? Um, then what you see over time is once the drug comes on the market, the number of indications that have exploratory studies surges to something like 33, and the number of indications for which confirmatory studies are ever done um, you know, just gets over 10. So for 17 of 27 indications, there's an exploratory study, something that piqued everyone's interest in that topic, but five years later, there is still no confirmatory study. That's 63% of, the, of these additional indications. Um, and that is kind of what they focus on. This is very interesting. What, is, what are they showing? They're 
patiently mapping the literature to show you what a company or we can we can wonder if it's the company or if it's the entire research community um, because not always are these studies funding sources noted um, but there's a reason to think it's the company the reason to think it's the company is that internal Pfizer and Park Davis documents made public during litigation surrounding the marketing of Neurontin, a compound structurally related to pregabalin, revealed a publication strategy designed to disseminate positive exploratory results and generate the clinical use of gabapentin for non-approved indications. So we actually know through litigation that this is a strategy employed by the industry. And what is the strategy? The strategy is once you get your drug on the market, you don't need to do good studies to get this drug to be used for other purposes, which may have much larger market share. You just need to change the hearts and minds of doctors. And doctors' hearts and minds can easily be changed by sending an attractive drug representative to their office with food who can butter them up and talk about how great they are and who can hand them the greatest exploratory study, some uncontrolled, useless piece of information that this doctor may not have had adequate medical education training to really rip apart and thus may be swayed by this nice person who's flattering them, bringing them food, and bringing them, you know, a reprint of this essentially useless study. And and that is probably what is actually going on. That's almost surely what is what Kimmelman and colleagues are tracking. They're just showing you how many indications that's happening for. Um, and that is surely what is happening all over the place. And listeners will know that um, Wagner and I and John Markhart and Austin Lammers and colleagues, and, um, we published a paper in the British Medical Journal about the way in which the NCCN extrapolates beyond the FDA approvals. And this is particularly problematic because the NCCN is one of the compendia that CMS must reimburse for. So if the NCCN says, you know, you should use this um, or you could use this, CMS says, uh, we got to pay for that at a certain level of evidence. Um, and what we found was, you know, generally low levels of evidence for those extrapolations in our paper. Um, here, they're showing the same thing. They're showing a company uh, uh, wh whose research agenda um, is to propel the use of their medication. And there's a line in the paper that I thought was really spot on. The U.S. 21st Century Cures Act, which establishes pathways to regulatory approval that bypass traditional confirmatory testing, seem likely to amplify the gap between exploratory and confirmatory testing. So it is clear that um, I think this is a strategy that's being used to drive the market share of costly branded products. Um, the only question is, is it appropriate? Well, the answer to that is, of course, no. It's not appropriate because what you want is a research agenda that provides credible information over time. What you don't want is seeding trials being run all over the place and then marketing um, replacing evidence as the as what drives prescription drug use. And that's why in you know the interview that's about to follow this segment, Sam Edwards and I are going to talk a great deal about beyond evidence-based medicine. And one of the things I'm going to say is that evidence-based medicine is needed now more than ever. And it's needed for precisely this reason, for precisely the reason outlined by Federico and colleagues, which is that you see manufacturers um, running or the field uh, running. We can't prove that it's always a manufacturer, but, you know, one has one guess, um, many, many low-quality trials to get a product used for off-label purposes. And there is nothing in the system that provides a check or balance on that. Um, I won't belabor this, and I, I won't be able to talk too much about pregabalin and what could be done. But when it comes to cancer drugs, I think we do need non-conflicted compendia, or we need a, 
uh, impartial body, not a group of conflicted experts deciding what goes on the compendia. That's a simple fix. Uh, when it comes to uh, drugs like pregabalin, uh, where there is not such a Medicare requirement to cover it, I think we're going to have to think more about what are the checks and balances. And one simple thing we could be doing is actually recommitting to educating um, future practitioners um, with evidence-based medicine. And probably the other thing we could do is to actually tackle financial conflicts of interest, um, which may also be driving some of the investigators who conduct these studies um, or who put their name on these studies, whether or not they conduct it. Uh, and I think that that would also um, be a step in the right direction. So again, my hat's off to Federico and colleagues for a very provocative paper. Uh, it's one thing to know that something exists. Um, it's another thing to see very clearly the scope of it, the breadth of it, and to track it. Um, and I think if you had to liken what they're doing to something, you would say they are akin to the investigative reporters um, you know, that are featured in movies like Spotlight and that do great work every day. They are doing sort of investigative journalism of biomedicine, um, and they require more technical knowledge to do that. But that's exactly what they're doing. And their role for the public good and public service is is no less important. And I think we would be better off if the next 10 people who want to be industry-sponsored KOLs um, instead spent a summer with Dr. Kimmelman and tried to be future Dr. Kimmelmans. Uh, I think the world would be a better place. So hats off. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sam Edwards. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Vinay. Can I tell listeners a little bit about you? So, Sure. You're an assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University and at the VA across Correct. the bridge. Mm -hmm. You did your internal medicine training at the House of God, Beth Israel Deaconess. That's right. And uh, it was just like the 1970s novel, House of God, was it not? Uh, there were some differences, though <laughs> I think there are truths in the House of God that, that last, and which is why people continue to read that book despite all its offensiveness. It is offensive. It's quite <laughs> cynical, but it does have some kernels of truth. Um, uh, uh, but you don't set the bed at orthopedic height, do you? No, no, we gave gave that up. <laughs> gave so, that uh, up. The the the, uh, the thing about not detecting a fever by not checking a temperature is a is a truth about data truth, collection yeah. in medicine. That is that is absolutely <laughs> true. And what about the um, Zoll defibrillator? Wasn't he a character of the House of God? I believe he was. He was long gone by the time I got there, and of course, by the time it became Beth Israel Deaconess, it was the product of a merger and a lot of sort of modern healthcare. Uh, changes. Uh, I think it changed the institution, but it still had a really strong core of clinical education. It was an outstanding place to train. Mm, absolutely. And you and uh, and you did your medical school where? Uh, Case Western, but actually the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve w were University. Were you the inaugural class? I was. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it was a it was a really interesting experience, but we got um, outstanding attention and uh, really great education. So I hear that now. That's a free medical school if you get in now. But when you trained, I don't think it was, was that, it? That is true. Yeah, when we started, it was not free, um, but uh, it was just a really exciting opportunity because it was very small. There were no grades. It was really focused on developing clinician investigators. Um, it just felt the energy of being part of a new school was really, really exciting to us at the time. So we took it on despite um, 
being the same price as the private Case Western Reserve University. I see, but that's well put. But you're right. There's some enthusiasm to create something new. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we got, I mean, the classes were only 32 students, so it was really, we got a lot of attention. And And the Cleveland Clinic was just so excited to have its own medical school. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some world-class physicians in many disciplines. And, and as you know, the now that they have the free medical school, that will encourage people to pursue primary care, will it not? Right. <laughs> right. That was a hot topic of debate. I mean, I, as someone who did, chose to do primary care um, and trained at a, an institution that's very sort of specialist focus, um, I would hope that alleviation of debt would lead people pursuing, you know, less lucrative careers. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think there's a, a, a strong evidence that there's a causal link there. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I wish it were that simple because what we, we we do want better and more primary care doctors. We want more interest in it. Um, but I do fear that, of course, people will pursue, you know, the lucrative specialties simply because in the long haul, over the course of a career, the lifetime's earnings of some of these specialties is several million dollars more uh, than primary care. And that's not going to change whether or not you got a free medical education. In fact, you just start with a little head start. Yeah, that's true. And I think people's decision making about specialty, it depends a lot on personalities and the culture of where you train. And, you know, it's, I think it's there are a lot of features that go into it. And there's a, there's a lot of things that make it hard to attract people in the primary care and, um, that's not going to solve it, but it, it, it is, it, it sounds good. It sounds yeah. good. It yeah. sounds like a feel good thing. Yeah. yeah. We, thanks to this uh, wonderful donor, we have free medical school and no more will students ever worry about the crushing debt. You know, I do think though that, um, we may agree that the actual price they charge you to attend medical school seems a bit steep. It seems like it probably doesn't cost them that much to run it. Yeah, I think how the costs work in medical school is not something I understand very well. But the cost, <laughs> yeah. the, the the sticker price of medical school is is really outrageous in the United States. I mean, considering most of the rest of the developed world does not charge that much for medical school. Um, you know, there's there's something changed. American exceptionalism. <laughs> yeah. That's how much better our school is. Right, right. It's just, just like, like just our some, cancer drugs. Right, yeah. just like our healthcare system. Just like right. our healthcare system. Right, it's exceptionally good. <laughs> well, I brought you here on the plenary session stage to talk about very provocative paper that came out of New England Journal of Medicine. But maybe before we launch into this, because I'm going to unleash a deluge of criticism, Right. we were talking just before we came on air a little bit about the incentives in academic medicine. You've had a chance to be in the greatest city for healthcare, Boston, Massachusetts, where every procedure is appropriate and uh, there is no inappropriate care and every physician is the, the absolute best. Um, I think we were talking a little bit about the fact that, you know, I do wonder sometimes if um, there's a moment in someone's career or if there's a fraction of people in academic medicine who no longer see their goal in life as doing good for society, for patients, for the healthcare system, but rather see it more as securing their place in the hierarchy of medical power. And sometimes I do worry that there are some people who the only reason they're commenting or publishing or they're writing this article is no longer because they seek to persuade others or seek to advance change, but just because they want to be the person that when you bring up this topic um, that gets cited and referenced. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real issue in academic culture more broadly, certainly in academic medical centers Mm -hmm. that we create this culture of, you know, publish or perish. You have to constantly be generating. You have like hard targets of how many things you have to publish per year in order to, you know, retain your uh, professor level 
Um, in order to advance, you have to do a certain amount of stuff in a certain amount of time. Um, and I think that that can kind of quash really uh, free thought and more ambitious inquiry. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like when I was a fellow, I did a research fellowship in Boston after residency. Um, I was really hungry to try to understand primary care, primary care health policy. It was an exciting time with the sort of recent publishing of the or um, passing of the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Medical homes were big, and so I was kind of just doing everything I could as fast as I could, but I wasn't doing it with a lot of reflection or thought. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I, was, I came out of being a resident and I was used to working really hard, <laughs> but um, I didn't have a chance to step back and think big about like what I wanted to do and how I wanted my research to contribute to or impact you know, healthcare or health for people. And um, that's something that I've had the freedom to do now, and I find it really exciting. Yeah, um, I think that's well put. I think um, one of the ways one sees it is embl- like one of the downstream things you see when some when you're in a culture where it's all about the product is whenever there's a change in FDA legislation or a change in Medicare guidelines or payment, um, people are competing to see who can analyze before and after the change, who can be the first to get that paper out there. Uh, there's a new drug that's approved for you know certain disease. Uh, who's the first to get the cost effectiveness analysis out there? You know, there's this competition, but those kind of papers are they're kind of forced moves in design space. I mean, it's an obvious idea. There's no, it's not a surprise that that's an idea that's gonna be interesting to look at, or at least, you know, will be published. Um, Maybe it's not interesting because some of these before and after methodologies are so flawed that it's, you know, not gonna tell you anything useful, but um, you see that hunger. But in contrast, when you are given space to really sit back and think, um, you realize that like, you know, I don't wanna be doing these very obvious projects where I'm just competing to be the first one to submit to the journal kind of want to do projects where you feel like, um, you know, that you have made an observation about the world that maybe not a whole lot of other people have made. And you want to see where that observation goes. What does it mean? What are the downstream implications? What are the upstream implications? That kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in having the space to really look back and see what has been done in research, and this relates to the piece I came to discuss, is that... um, one of my primary care preceptors in Boston, uh, a guy named Peter Zaromskis, who does primary care in Lexington, Massachusetts, he once said to me, you know, he's like, the wise man writes, but the wiser man reads. Mm. <laughs> Meaning that so much of what we think we are discovering has been discovered and thought about and attempted to be implemented over the years. Um, and often didn't succeed for various reasons. And there's just, just a moment to step back and kind of build on what's already known and think about what really is novel because a lot of stuff that's presented as kind of quick fix policy solutions we're really recapitulating a lot of the same ideas over and over again Mm -hmm. and it but it's hard to find the time to do that um getting to your point about the sort of policy i mean there's a lot of policy changes that where sort of natural experiments are needed so i think that it's good that there's competition to do really high quality work in that space but I agree that taking a policy decision that's already made and seeing if it works is important, but maybe um, you know less creative than trying to understand why. And that right. you know may not be answered using sort of large scale quantitative secondary data. Right. 
Um, That's well put. And I love your quote. The quote I like that it makes me think of is the Mark Twain quote, which is, uh, there's no difference between the man who cannot read and the man who chooses not to. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> which as the author of a, a book, I, I feel intimately, you know, because uh, so many people just don't read. Um, um, but um, I think you're right that there's over and over in medicine, you see people coming uh, to the plate uh, pretending that they have um, thought of something new and innovative that no one has thought before. Uh, and uh, reality is you look back a few years and you find a stream of publications that said pretty much the same thing, but for whatever reason didn't gain traction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we're in an interesting age now because, um, you know, information is so much more democratized. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get your message out in so many other ways. I mean, if you wrote some really brilliant perspective piece 30 years ago and it got buried in some journal, right. you're really hoping that someone finds it, you know, in the era of PubMed. Um and on, honestly, and I think this is a more, more getting into sort of the nature of, of journals, um, some of the most creative work I've read are in journals I've never heard of or journals that have gone out of business because a lot of mainstream journals are kind of pressured to produce stuff that looks like what we're used to. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the kind of work that's kind of crazy and doesn't, and people are like, this is in research. You're like, well, yeah, it's. We're trying to do something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you end up. We end up submitting some of our work to journals that are, you know, not widely read. Um, but you know, I think because of because of the internet and social media and whatnot, sometimes it doesn't get, matter anymore. Yeah, you yeah. can get more attention even if you are in a journal that doesn't. You know, I mean, the, the the idea that journals are printed and then people get them in their offices and read them every month. I mean, no, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't right? happen. Yeah. I mean, reading a table of contents in your email is probably the most regular following of journals that I do. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm in academic medicine, so I probably read journals as, as much as, as many. I tell students the same thing. You know, sometimes you work on a paper with a, a student or a resident and they're a little disappointed and didn't get into the top tier journal. But I tell them that in my experience, you know, some of the ideas I thought were the most provocative and interesting and the findings that were the most, um, you know, outside the mainstream were published in, you know, not the, the best, absolute best journals, but, you know, five, 10 years later, um, they're still very well cited and perhaps maybe even more cited than some of these other things. Um, and the word got out because I think you're right. We, you know, because of Twitter and because of other ways um, that bypass the traditional gatekeepers that had been there. Um, but um, let's just jump into this because I think this sure. is a good intro, intro to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you want to talk about people who are reinventing the wheel, let's talk about Beyond Evidence-Based Medicine by Stacey Chang and Tom Lee uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, of course, um, uh, I believe, uh, isn't uh, Dr. Lee editorial board member of the New England Journal of Medicine? Which I don't could, know. Yeah, but uh, I, I don't think that could hurt your chances uh, when you're submitting this. Uh, and he certainly uh, uh, plays an important role at Press Ganey, um, which is a patient satisfaction survey company. Um, I guess I'll just put this in a, in a brief nutshell. The way, you know, my takeaway from this is, or, you know, at least what they're saying before we, I think, at least, well, at least one of us, we'll see who, who decides to punish this paper the most. But uh, I mean, because I, I don't like it. But I mean, what do I think is different? You know, they say, look, the opening puts it all. Evidence-based medicine was an important advance over intuition-based medicine. It was. It isn't, but it, it's not is, it's was. Mm -hmm. um, I think listeners should know a little bit about the history of, I think, 20th century medicine. Um, for most of human history, medicine was really 
trial and error done at sort of an individual level um, where it was a person who practiced medicine trying things um, largely based on the philosophical school of medicine that that person trained in. I shouldn't even say that person. I should say he because it was mostly men for most of human history. Um, Finally, we reached a point maybe in the mid-20th century where we had the very first randomized controlled trials, trials for like streptozocin and tuberculosis. Um, uh, we had had controlled studies before, like James Lind and scurvy, but they weren't true randomized controlled trials until, I think, 1948 or something like that. Um, but really, the role of randomized trials is playing such an important role in adjudicating uh, signal from noise. Probably didn't gain prominence until the 1980s and 1990s, when we finally had some trials that actually flew in the face of large conventional wisdom and large observational studies. I'm thinking of CAST, um, you know, antiarrhythmic therapy mm-hmm. and flecainide. Um, and then I think of the work that came out of McMaster and people like David Sackett and Gordon Guyatt and the you know the really the 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 the, the parents of evidence-based medicine um, who did a lot of work to talk about what is evidence-based medicine and they basically said evidence-based medicine is this um, new recognition that although experience matters although you have to always take very seriously the doctor-patient interaction and you have to also take seriously your personal experience now we live at a time where we need to take ex- the experience of others into account. We need to look at it broadly and agnostically, and that's evidence. That really is this way that we can learn from the experience of many more people than ourselves. And evidence-based medicine is the best way to integrate the best available data with your own experience and the patient's preferences to make the absolute best decision. And it was really kind of a thumb in the nose of the face of um, you know, um, eminence-based medicine, where you'd only do what you were taught. It was thought to be this thing where you know sometimes what you're taught is wrong. And sometimes the person who is the most charismatic and the biggest name is also wrong. And randomized trials don't pick who's the most charismatic leader in terms of what they result. They pick what actually works. Um, And we need to prioritize that. So that's evidence-based medicine. It doesn't doesn't mean discount your experience. It doesn't mean don't listen to patients. It just means prioritize evidence when it comes to making causal inferences about therapies. here come Tom Lee and Stacey Chang, and they argue that evidence-based medicine, you know, we've outgrown it. There are problems with guidelines. There's problems with the norms. Our incentives are flawed. What we need is interpersonal medicine, a returning to patients' values and preferences and circumstances and unique situation. Um, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think, I think your first point is that, you know, at least Sackett and colleagues in originally conceptualizing evidence-based medicine did not characterize it as the sort of robotic application of clinical trial evidence to everyday practice. Right. And say like, you don't get this medicine because this trial said no, I don't care about you or your context or your family, that's the deal. You know, it's the, the taking um, patient perspective, context, uh, relationships, and individual experience into account was all part of that. Um, and even in that original piece, which was cited, I mean, it really taught, it, it, it's almost prescient and warns against the sort of blanket use of evidence as a, as a hammer, you know, like we have to make sure to value the experience of clinicians and patients' perspectives when we do this. But instead of, you know, kind of running on hunches or our concepts of how physiology work that right. are untested, we should really base this on randomized trials since we have, you know, randomized experiments that can give us, you know, better, better, uh, better evidence. Yeah. So in other words, um, from the very seminal paper that these authors cite, they acknowledge that, look, this is not going to be a be all end all. You'll never have a randomized trial for everything. And I think, you know, you and I 
as people who see patients, we know that that's never going to be the case. But meanwhile, we also recognize that, you know, in spaces where there are no randomized studies, you're really kind of out on a limb. I mean, sometimes you really worry that, like, it's not that I know the drug works in people with characteristics A, B, and C, and now I have a person with A, B, C, and maybe a little bit D, you know, something that I don't quite know. But so often it's a case where I have never been convinced that this intervention works under any circumstances, and now you're getting multi-billion dollar industries built on the back of that, you know, without even the single fundamental study. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing to think that, um, the sort. Of, I mean, obviously the current scale of the pharmaceutical industry is kind of terrifying, but it, back then that they were doing the same thing, but just with much worse evidence. Yeah, with much worse, yeah. yeah. It's like, that's pretty crazy that we were making decisions like that. I mean, even going back, you know, even another 20 or 30 years, I mean, the the way things were marketed and overseen, this is kind of terrifying. I mean, I think we've made progress in that space. Um, I think another point is in that, um, I think I saw Mark Helfand make this point at a meeting once, you know, that like prior to evidence-based medicine, it's not like physicians were super interpersonal and caring <laughs> right, all the time, right. right? They were also dismissive, paternalistic, didn't it's listen to patients. Probably more so. It was yeah. a culture of paternalism. Yeah, and, and I mean, there were many very patient-centered clinicians also, just like there are now, but it wasn't like the evidence was the thing that switched it, right? It was like they were doing, the, they practiced the way they practice, but they either based their thinking on... Um, the sort of eminence as you describe or sort of theories of physiology or whatever, they, however they were trained at their fancy medical school versus, you know, trying to integrate better standardized, better generalized studies over large populations. So, you know, kind of keeping the patient-centeredness and the evidence is, is not like they're not um, conflicting right. <laughs> philosophies, you know, and then, and then Sackett knew that and he put it in his article. So it's it's a little disappointing to see that that's not recognized in this. I mean, I, I think where the authors have a point, though, is that I think evidence has been used to in, in sort of broader sort of commodification of the way healthcare is delivered. Yes, it's by, been hijacked. Yeah, by and it's been turned, you know, by the, by the fact that, you know, guidelines, I mean, fundamentally, a lot of evidence is based around single disease conditions and specialty care. So those get turned into quality measures, and those quality measures are adopted by EHRs, they're adopted by payers, and then they're used as tools to kind of beat physicians up. And typically in primary care physicians of all people. Right. right. Well, in yeah. primary care, mm -hmm. you, you because you deal with the most conditions, you deal with the most quality measures. So you're kind of like stuck in this situation where you're out in practice, you know, EHRs, everyone, there's lots of complaints about EHRs, but right. certainly part of it is this, am I meeting all these quality measures with this individual patient? And what I'd really like to do is talk to them about right. what matters to them right. and try to figure out how healthcare can intersect with that. But can but, I make the argue, I mean, I yeah. want to argue heretically that that, that application is actually anti-evidence-based because if you were really evidence-based about it, you would start to ask the questions of, um, as you implement guidelines, can you perform randomized experiments to prove that meeting these targets or meeting these guidelines or having these quality metrics improve outcomes? You know, like that's itself a testable question. Yeah. But instead they've just been, you know, I remember working at the VA when I was a resident and we just had this checklist of all these things you had to hit. Probably now, you know, not that many years, six, seven, eight years later, half of those things have been debunked. You know, they probably didn't improve outcomes. Right, right. We just stopped uh, stopped doing aspirin. We stopped doing aspirin. <laughs> yeah, aspirin was one, PSA yeah. screening for everybody. I yeah. mean, I remember in the early part of my training, there was no informed consent discussion. We weren't, you know, about PSA, about mammography and PSA screening. Right. Um, it was just do it, check off the box. You didn't check off the box. 
anyway, I, but I mean, to come to this point about like the quality metrics, I think I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, taking a few evidence-based tidbits or maybe not even evidence-based tidbits, but something that, and making those into quality metrics and, you know, unrelentingly try to maximize those metrics, that is a bad idea. Um, that just makes the job miserable. I think it is probably one of the reasons why primary care um, has had difficulty in recruiting people because people don't want to be checking boxes. Um, and it also is, I think, counter to evidence-based medicine because those are not proven to improve outcomes. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think, I think that that's what this article tries to capture is that sense of physicians being kind of beat down by measurement and systems, but they call it evidence-based medicine, and it's not really that we all want to use evidence and give our patients things that actually work. Right? right? Yeah. Like well, we no, should. Yeah. No, no primary care doctor is going to argue with that, but um, they're, and they're not going to say that evidence is the isn't the reason that we're not able to have these relational elements, which are well understood in our practice. Um, so I think you know that I think the the misunderstanding of of my understand of definition of evidence-based medicine was one of the things that frustrated me about this article, but probably more so is just that it, it kind of defines this concept of interpersonal care without discussing any of the literature on doctor-patient relationships, patient-centered care, goal-oriented care, definitions of primary care, like the core philosophy of family medicine, which is <laughs> right. like I mean, the whole article is about that, right? And, <laughs> and I think that's what Kenny Lynn said on Twitter. He said, "This is called this is called family medicine." Yeah, I could certainly, I, I could certainly. I mean, as a primary care doctor, I kind of it kind of touched a nerve with me. But I mean, certainly for family physicians, I mean, this concept of of therapeutic partnership, um, of sort of integrating and prioritizing care for patients through longitudinal relationships. I mean, this is totally essential. It's vital to their whole whole philosophy of care. And you know, family medicine's an interesting field. I don't, I don't claim to be an expert here, but um, you know, in the in the wake in the 1960s sort of in the wake of of massive subspecialization um, in the US, family medicine kind of emerged as this force to try to reintegrate care right. around people, real people and their right. needs and developing a, a sort of a class of physicians that were experts in common conditions and whole people. Right, right. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's what, kind of what's being described here. Um, One of the things I saw online, people said, you know, I, I saw a lot, of, I mean, it's definitely created a lot of reaction. I would say I would classify most of what I saw were people who felt like this article was not very novel, restating things we already knew and is actually not countered evidence-based medicine was things that Sackett had said all along. Um, so that was most of it. There were some people who did, you know, bring up the the things that they think are wrong with evidence-based medicine. And I'll, and I'll talk about those in a second. But I think I put them under this umbrella term, which is like, just because United Airlines is bad doesn't mean the airplane is the problem. So, you know, when you fly on commercial, United Airlines can be a miserable experience. You have to wait in this ridiculous line. There's like six board, five boarding groups. I'm always boarding group five, no matter how much I fly. I have to stuff my bag into this tiny little thing. They charge me extra for extra bags. The seat, the head space and seat space is shrinking every year. My knees, you know, hit it. But that's not the fault of the Boeing 747. You know, you could have made the airplane better. And so some of the things they say about randomized trials is, oh, randomized trials only inc include patients with no comorbidities who are only taking, you know, no other medications. It's not relevant for the people we see. 
All of us who practice medicine recognize that that is a big problem. We lack pragmatism, but that's not the failure of randomization. It's because we are doggedly pursuing idealized efficacy trials. Um, similarly, um, you know, once you get a positive trial, you have to mandate that we all follow it. Again, that's not. Uh, in fact, that's a, probably a misapplication of evidence-based medicine. Just one good example, Entresto, you know, Secbutril Valsartan in the one positive trial paradigm HF. There's a lot of things wrong with that trial. You're comparing full-dose ACE against half-dose, um, full-dose ARB against half-dose ACE. You have a double drug run-in period, unequal periods of time, 20% falling off in the run-in period. I mean, a, a true practitioner of EBM would say, let's do a confirmatory study. Um, they wouldn't say, let's make this a quality, you know, let's make this a mandate, let's make this a, a metric. Um, so I think some of what I heard about like what people think EBM isn't doing is either a misunderstanding of what EBM is or um, the fact that it has to some degree been hijacked, I think, by commercial interests. I mean, at the end of the day, EBM is a pragmatic philosophy that sought to replace intuition and, and eminence with objective assessment of evidence in a non-conflicted way. And I think we need that in 2018 more than ever. Yeah, well, and I think that the, I like the point that you know you can put randomization in studies, and it doesn't it doesn't sort of undermine everything else about it. I mean, certainly right. a lot of the policy work we think about when we ever, whenever you're trying to look for causation and sort of observational data, you're trying to come up with all the cleverest ways you right, can. Right. But if you had to, you could just inject a little bit of randomization, then you know you'd have a lot better case to make. Um, about causation at the end of the study. As we did in Oregon with Medicaid, with Medicaid right. expansion. Right, which and it's, it's, I mean, that was a remarkable opportunity to get to, to get to study Medicaid expansion, and, and we learned a lot nationally about the, the nature of health insurance. Mm -hmm. Stuff seemed that we should have known, perhaps, it's, but. It's a good thing those MIT researchers thought of doing it. <laughs> right. I'm, sure, I'm sure many people thought of, thought of that. No, but, but uh, they're yeah. the ones who thought of it. Oh, right. Oh, they thought of it. Well, that once it was done, they thought of it. Yeah. Right, right. Well, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's important to have have that data now. Yeah, I think, um, um, and I mean, I guess I see like, yeah, well, I don't know, this is, one of the, this is one of these things I love to complain about, which is that there's so much interest in like the tech space, the startup space of all these things we can do to make healthcare more innovative, a contact lens that can tell you your blood glucose. Um, I saw something, you look in your retina and you know what your blood pressure was. I was like, well, I have another way to tell you your blood pressure, it's called a cuff. Okay, but whatever, you wanna look in the retina and tell me your blood pressure, fine. The one thing I see Silicon Valley very, I don't see the interest in doing is one, make an EMR that's not the most convoluted, painful thing to use ever and that loads quickly. Uh, the second thing is make randomization cheap and feasible. You know, we have some examples of like pragmatic randomized trials run very at low price, like the TASTE trial from the Netherlands, which was mechanical aspiration of thrombus for MI. They have like 60% of all people you know, in an, in a region um, accruing on study because it's a single sort of point of care randomization. Imagine a primary care network where we have point of care randomization. You, you can answer dozens of clinical questions in six months in primary care that have long bedeviled, you know, physicians. Um, so I think that, you know, if a case should be made, the case should be made for more, not less randomization to answer just very basic pragmatic questions that we all struggle with. Yeah, well, you know, in, in um sort of history of primary care research. I mean, there are a lot of practice-based research networks that have, yeah. have pulled together a lot of um, small practice settings that weren't traditionally part of academic medical centers since, you know, thinking back to the sort of uh, ecology of medical care where, you know, most most people are not at academic medical centers. If you want to study common problems that most people experience, you have to study them outside of academic medical right. centers. Um, 
But I mean, practice-based research networks have been doing, you know, outstanding work for years. For years, and, yeah. And now, I mean, you know, for the good and bad of all of EHRs, um, it does allow for more practice-based research and easier collection of data, especially on things like blood pressure, which have an objective measurement. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of opportunity for sort of practice-based research coming down the down the pike. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you have jotted down for this paper? Uh. Did we hit your high points? I got a couple more things to say. Yeah, I think. I mean, I guess my my main main points yeah. were the just this this concept of of patient. I mean, patient centered care. I mean, there's so much work on defining patient centered care and understanding it over like the last fifty years. And it was really hard to see this article present a lot of these concepts as if they were new. Um, They're like, we got you. We did it. Right. We solved the problem. Let me right. ask you, if you submitted this exact same article, would it be published in the New England Journal of Medicine? Um, I I don't suspect that it would. Yeah. But I mean, but you know, I but I taking that back, I want to say that I'm really happy that these ideas are out there, um, despite the sort of clunky interpretation of what evidence-based medicine is. I mean, I think that a focus on um, relationships, patients' needs, um, contextualizing care to real people's lives, I mean, that's stuff I really care about because I do primary care. And like I said, that's the core philosophy of the practice. We understand, but doesn't get put in the New England Journal very much. Um, So I'm happy those ideas are elevated, but I, I, I wish it was based in kind of a stronger understanding of the literature. Like there's like a really outstanding review of a relationship-centered care from the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2006, Mary Catherine Beach. It's like really elegantly like kind of describes the field up to that point, which includes um, all the work on patient-centered care from um, Moira Stewart, who's from Canada. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I think I agree with you, you know, to a large degree that these are good ideas in this. I mean, we we believe in a lot of the ideas that they're saying. I guess what rubs us the wrong way is that they are acting like they reinvented the wheel. Would have been nice to see this as like called reaffirming evidence-based medicine, getting back to what David Sack had always said um, and framing it that way. The other thing I think is like this is a journal that if they really wanted to, they could practice what they preach. And here's a simple thing they could do. Um, We talk a lot about real world evidence. Every time they publish a randomized phase three practice changing trial from here on out, they can do a simple real world analysis to say what percent of patients in a large general American medical population would have been eligible for this study. If you apply the ICEC to this trial um, to just a cohort of 10,000 people randomly picked from Epic, what percent of people with this diagnosis would have been eligible based on the age, the comorbidities, you know, the number of medications. Start, you know, just put that out there, 10%. 11%. I think the number will be sobering to many people. The two things that jumped out at me at this paper were, you know, when they did actually come to, you know, rhetoric is one thing, but I always like when papers give specific examples of like, what are you talking about? And when they gave those specific examples, I thought, is that really what they're getting at? For example, the Dell Medical School's clinics have no waiting rooms. Patients are shown directly to a room that is designed primarily to accommodate conversation among the patient family members and the clinicians who will visit them. No exam table is in sight. A chair converts to an exam table when necessary. So that's their like, I, that was their actual concrete recommendation. And I thought to myself, that's not aiming so high. Uh, we we call that room an exam room. Many of them don't have a bed. They are they do have a chair that converts to a bed these days. Um, sometimes patients are annoyed to wait in the waiting room, but sometimes people are more annoyed to wait uh, in this room because you're all by yourself. You don't even get to socialize with your you know other people who are going through the same thing. 
Um, you know, anyone who works in a cancer practice would tell you that patients often make friends with people in the waiting room. Um, that's just something that I hear about all the time. Um, I don't know if it's really a, a step up to just say, um, as I hear, like, you know, here's your here's your vibrating uh, Olive Garden pager. Uh, when your table is ready, we'll take you right to your room, and then you're going to wait there for your doctor for 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was a kind of an odd example, too. I mean, I think it comes out of some of the thinking around engineering clinical spaces to mm-hmm. be more patient-centered. So yeah. the idea is maybe the waiting rooms should suck less. You know? <laughs> right. They should like, suck less, They yeah. should be plants, and the lights should be nice. They shouldn't just be sort of miserable fluorescent lit, cold, too cold, left in a gown. You shouldn't wait for 45 minutes. You should be there for five minutes or less. Yeah. I think we all want that. We all want that. Yeah, like yeah. No, one, no one wants terrible waiting rooms and we want patients to wait in an com- environment that's comfortable. I would agree that I don't think waiting rooms are purely therapeutic, but they're, you know, the unexpected relationships might occur. It's not like a terrible You're thing. You're talking about the communal waiting room, right? Yeah. The communal waiting room is not so terrible. I mean, I don't know. I I think people may have different ideas which well, they prefer. I, I think that's, I mean, I, I'm really curious about this idea, especially people facing cancer diagnosis. That's quite a different waiting room than my waiting room, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, different. There's a real fear that's palpable among people facing those kinds of diagnoses, and there might be a real strong sense of community among people in oh, that I setting. Oh, I hear all the time my patients make friends in that in yeah. that communal waiting room. See, that makes me wonder how much, you know, how much that's been studied. I yeah, mean, like, it makes me wonder. You know, I mean, qualitative research, I mean, you could observe, or, I mean, it's fraught with IRB issues, but still, I mean, that's, uh, anyway, getting back to, getting back yeah, to yeah. nicer waiting rooms, I think... How about um, a blanket that doesn't suck? Because that's just, yeah. every. I've never been to a hospital where the blanket was anything you would actually use. Yeah, that's true. You know, at the VA, they they say like property of the yeah, Department I've of Veterans. Seen <laughs> and then I would see people with like six blankets to stay warm. Yeah. The other thing I thought was very condescending was their last line. We can pursue an empathetic version of medicine that embraces emotion and appreciates behavior if we value human nature as much as human biology. Well, I'll tell you what. Everyone who's been practicing has been aspiring to do that for, you know, 100 years. Okay? Yeah. We've been trying. Um, yeah, we, get, don't, we don't always succeed, but, you know, your, your only thing you're bringing to the table different is you want to get rid of the communal waiting room and have us wait sitting on the butcher block paper in our individual waiting room. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, again, I think the concept is good. Um, I think in going back to the sort of family medicine research world, Kurt Stange, who was the editor of the Annals of Family Medicine, frequently talks about balancing the... Um, the biotechnical with the biographical, yeah. right? We all get that and want to do it. But patients' experience of care is often really fragmented, um, not humanistic, and just bad. And I think that's true. And we have to, we, like, our um, intentions aside, we need to embrace the fact that people are having bad experiences of care. And, you know, maybe thinking about systems. Um, is a way to approach that better. I'm, I don't, you know, maybe just making the waiting rooms nicer, um, you know, looking at patient satisfaction surveys. I don't think either of those things by themselves are going to fix it. But, you know, how can we embrace a more holistic way of talking to people in healthcare settings? Um, you know, I think it's an important question. Though, I, But I, I, it does feel from this article, it's, it's kind of feels like as a clinician, I'm being told that I don't do this and I don't understand it. And I do, and I care passionately about these things and I try to execute it on every day in clinic. So it's hard to read this. And I think that's why it, it touched a nerve with so many people on um, social media is that they're, everyone's out there working really hard. They're getting bombarded with check boxes. They want to do a good job, but it's like something about the system isn't allowing us to deliver on this kind of care. 
and um, it's not us, and it's not David Sackett. No, it's not David Sackett, who, <laughs> yeah. who at the age of, I think, 56, went back and did intern year again. Wow. Right? You know, because that's how he felt. He wanted to prove that he still was sharp. I mean, you talk about sort of an inspirational figure. It's David Sackett, who I'm sure was a consummate bedside clinician and not, yeah. you know, a, a mere application of checkbox. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, I guess as a, as a specialist, and I don't know how, you're in a field that I think is maybe good about this in a way that I don't know if all specialists are, but there's something that kind of annoyed me about it, which was when I reflect about cancer medicine and I think about some of the decisions that I see or hear about, I so often get frustrated because I think that there are a lot of people who are out there practicing who don't understand evidence-based medicine. They are happy to discard multiple randomized trials for their gut feeling. They're happy to let pathophysiology guide treatment. They argue for coverage decisions that are for unproven, Hail Mary, $100,000 therapies with real toxicity. They almost never think about the downsides. They only think about potential upsides. You hear so often from patients, and I understand there's probably problems on both ends of communication, but people who don't understand their prognosis is not curative when it is in fact not curative. I see that all the time. <laughs> yeah, and so you start to wonder, um, you know, with this real crisis going on, like is the message you wanna send that we should practice more based on, you know, our gut? I, or, or should we kind of commit again to patient-centered evidence-based medicine, which I thought was, if anything, we could improve at, uh, that there's still a lot of people not doing well. So that's what frustrates me is I sometimes worry that it's a, like many articles in the New England Journal in the last few years, I worry it's a step in the wrong direction, like we saw with conflict of interest. Right. Um, oh, it's a confluence of interest. It doesn't matter that your doctor took 80 Gs from Celgene and is prescribing you Celgene drugs. No biggie. Sure, sure, those are off-label uses. It's not a big deal. It's called a confluence of interest. Okay, so like that article, like their, their randomized trial series saying, randomized trials are tedious and onerous and burdensome, and therefore we should do away with them and just have uncontrolled observational studies guide all the treatment, you know? Yeah. So I, I think some, a part of me worries that this is part of their like theme series of like stepping in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, I think it's that's a good perspective. I mean, I think the decisions I make clinically about what kind of therapies to apply is more like, you know, lisinopril versus right. losartan, right. right? So it's the cost and risk is in, in a totally different class. When you're dealing with with medicines that have extreme toxicity, cost society extraordinary amounts of money, include costing patients ex potentially extraordinary amounts right. of money. Right, no, of course, yeah. For potentially no benefit. I mean, and, that's and for certain toxicity. Toxicity that there's a reason why phase one trials aren't done in healthy volunteers for anti-neoplastic drugs. It's right. because we are willing to bear high toxicity. And so these drugs come with toxicity. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk about these off-label uses and... Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's a, I can, I can see your reaction is like, how could we not want more evidence in this space? Like these yeah. are, this is a really serious stuff. Yeah. We are in putting really toxic things into people's veins. We need to have the best evidence available using yes. randomized experiments. <laughs> yes, that's I, right. Thank I'm, you. I'm that's totally thought, with you. Yeah. I think, I think it gets muddier when you're into, you know, some primary care therapies where it's, where the, you know, the risk and benefit are both lower. Yeah, are and lower. And um, yeah. And yeah. so you're you're kind of you know you're you're into more of this sort of relationship space, um, and and thinking about the you know we we care for people who are healthy and then we leverage those relationships when they get sick, you know suddenly they're facing a big healthcare decision but we've known them for a few years so we have that trust and when they're considering their options, you know we can really help them in a way that's pretty powerful. Um, 
but yeah, I don't I don't relish the decision of having to, to figure out which sort of toxic thing to put in their vein for these diagnoses. Before I let you go, let me ask you one thing. You've been you've been on faculty here for three, just over three years now. It's about four, yeah. Four years. Yeah. And you've um, you've gotten some grant funding. You've been successful. I, this is all I hear from the rumor mill. I hear you right. well. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk to. We have a lot of listeners who are at least a few hundred thousand listeners. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, who are uh, <laughs> 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 but of we, okay, of course. But we have a few listeners who, um, but actually, quite a quite a large number of the listeners we do have are people who are trainees. Um, what would you tell trainees about, I guess, one, why you chose to do what you did, which I think is academic primary care with um, a good amount of research? Maybe two, um, what have you, what do you wish you knew four years ago um, that you know today? Um, a little bit about your experience and, and do you feel like, I don't know, you're happy with what you do? It sounded like you are because you get to actually, you get to actually sit back and think. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that, thank you. Um, so, you know, what I... When I, the inspiration I think for my career came from when I hit the clinical part of medical school. Um, and it was just chaos. I mean, <laughs> the realities of like a uh, hospital is just wild. I mean, there's so, so much complexity. Um, so much of the care seems so fragmented and crazy. You know, you're trying to discharge people, but they don't have a primary care doctor and their insurance isn't accepted by the care practice you want to send them to. And it was just like all this mess. And then combined with all the sort of clinical learning happening at the same time, I was just, I really wanted to understand how the systems worked mm -hmm. and why they worked the way they did. Mm. Um, and so that kind of interest in sort of big picture integration with policy led me to do my training in internal medicine, mm -hmm. followed by a research fellowship in general internal medicine. Um, Where'd you do that in? At uh, Harvard Medical School mm -hmm. and the Boston VA, I, um, I considered that or the the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which right. is now which is just now called the what? Clinical yeah. Scholars Program. I see. Um, but uh, because my wife was staying in Boston for continue her medical training, um, I did the Harvard program, and that was a really outstanding experience to really think about health policy and the kind of levers to change medicine that exist at the national scale through Medicare, mm -hmm. which is a lot of what I did then, um, but also looking at the VA, which is an integrated health system and has kind of a dis different decision-making structure around how care has changed. Um, and then, yeah, came out of fellowship and out of those types of fellowships, typically you're looking for sort of a clinician investigator position that mm -hmm. has some startup funding that mm -hmm. gives you some space to get a grant. So I was fortunate enough to uh, be hired here at the Portland VA. Mm -hmm. Um, and extended some of the work that I did as a trainee on home-based primary care, which is like an intensive um, home-based care model, interdisciplinary home care for older um, homebound uh, people, um, and then wrote a career development award about that. So that's what I'm in the midst of doing. I'm learning qualitative research methods, which I know nothing about, but mm -hmm. are really exciting because it's kind of like a chance to finally answer the why mm -hmm. questions about these care models yeah. instead of just counting whether they worked or not. Yeah. Um, and how do you divide your time? How much are you in the clinic and how much are you doing research? I am 75% research, 25% clinic. So I just do half day a week primary care, half day a week precepting residents. I teach a couple of random clinical topics throughout the year to the residents. Mm -hmm. Um, but like other, bread and butter medicine topics? 
topics? Yeah, yeah, oh, that's just good. yeah. I did I did some stuff on screening tests last year mm. and did some teaching session. And on would you teach him that uh, there's no such thing as over screening? Yeah. Just, just for everything I, all the time. I think we reviewed um, diabetes, lipids, and colorectal cancer. And oh, good it, ones. It was just you know just just to show them how there isn't a lot of evidence for screening strategies. Yeah, um, yeah, for some of the, yeah. yeah and, it's, and, and it was interesting to see what there was and what we were able to come up with, um, but also reviewing guidelines because you have to have something practical to follow when you're in clinic. Um, but reviewing the fact that the different societies have different guidelines and that might reflect their, you know, sort of bias. <laughs> right, um, And it's yeah. not uncommon to, you know, see that. Anyway. As a general rule, the specialists tend to screen early and often and more. Right, right. There's right. nothing like having an empty clinic down the road that makes you interested in screening for your disease. Right, <laughs> so right. Is that how it works? Yeah, well, was, I mean, it's interesting training in Boston, which I, I mean, was a privilege and an amazing experience, but there's so many specialists in Boston that like, I mean, in primary care, like if you have like a subclinical hypothyroidism, like there's someone who wants to, yeah, some yeah. specialist who wants to see that patient. So know? I heard this thing, um, I don't know, it's, a, it's one of those folklore stories. I don't know if it's true or not, but like many years ago, there was some study that came out of like compared New Haven to Boston. And if you look at like the per capita bed to patient ratio, it was actually like Yale was the only player in town. Whereas in Boston, you've got, you know, Tufts and BU and BIDMC and right, you've, got, right. you've got so many hospitals that, and I, I hope somebody actually fact check this because this is something I never looked into. But basically right. somebody told me that like, um, basically every ICU bed that they open will always be full. And it's just because they lower the threshold of what it means to go to the ICU. And right. in New Haven, there are fewer ICU beds. So it was just sicker people in the ICU. So it's sort of like, um, you know, specialists will create the patient volume they need, no matter what the burden of disease in the underlying population is kind of philosophy. Yeah, I don't I don't know that study yeah. in particular, but the concept of uh, supply driven demand in <laughs> yeah. healthcare yeah. is well established. And yeah. that if you open a hospital, it will fill up. It will fill up, <laughs> yeah. They, they will find a way to fill the beds with people who are sick. And if that means, you know, redefining who's sick, that's what happens. And yeah. there's evidence from that from all over the country. I mean, that's a lot of the Dartmouth Atlas work. Mm -hmm. But so, so what would you what would you tell trainees that what have you learned that you wish you knew four years ago? Well, I mean, I think I guess stepping back a little bit further, I think um, you know, being a generalist researcher is a viable career path and is really Good. rewarding yeah. and exciting, and yeah. it's actually pretty potentially pretty influential. I mean, I've I've been startled at how quickly I got into home care medicine research within the VA, and within a few years, I'm regularly talking with clinical leadership. At geriatrics of home care of like how the program works and what the next steps are no, it's awesome. like they really in this in the va certainly they really value research and they really want to understand data and try to use it and that's been a real privilege to get a chance to sort of take action on what i'm learning quickly um but it's just yeah it's just a really rewarding career and the breadth of what you can study in general medicine research is really all over the place yeah I mean, that's what can, i that's what i've noticed from people yeah, yeah. it's always i'm a, you know uh, you see somebody working in uh, neurological conditions one week and they go back to lipids the next week and then they look at delivery systems and then they look at, you know, depression. Um, right. My um, co-author of the book, Adam Sifu, who's been on this podcast, he likes to say um, that his favorite thing about general medicine was for like five years, he could just focus on the thyroid and thyroid diseases and really kind of learn more about it and, and really think about that heavily and just try to treat a lot of things by himself without any referrals. Um, then the next five years, he can pick up a different subject and really delve in deep. And, you know, that's sort of a privilege you have in general medicine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, I mean, and, and I think it's as a researcher, it's fun because I think, I mean, obviously you, you continue to learn both clinically and research wise throughout your career, 
But having a certain set of skills, it makes you really helpful as a collaborator mm. and being able to bridge the clinical and research worlds. Because mm -hmm. I work with a lot of researchers who are um, sociologists, anthropologists, economists, you know, and they all come from, have kind of different um, training and perspective on how to do research, what research questions are important, et cetera. And as someone who practices enough medicine to, to help them contextualize their work into our world, um, you know, you can be a real powerful connector. Um, and, it, and it's neat to get the opportunity to learn from all those people and all these disciplines that, you know, we were trained in basically biology and experiment med experimental medicine, you know, mm -hmm. like, and now I've been able to broaden my scope a lot. That's, that's well put. And what, um, what have you found frustrating and what don't you like? That's my last question. Uh, <laughs> well, I Spill mean. Spill it. There's, a, I mean, I think, I think in all jobs, there's a lot of um, just sort of administrative mm -hmm. stuff, you know, mm -hmm. trying to keep meetings on track, trying to get paperwork lined up, making sure you don't fall behind on uh, deadlines with the IRB and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, it, the burden is, is not, I th it seems well worth it to get the freedom to both practice medicine, because I find primary care as a practice incredibly rewarding yeah. and get to think bigger about it yeah. at the same time. That's real privilege because um, I feel like a lot of the people who are doing the good work in medicine are out on the front lines working really hard and they don't have the time or capacity to like step back yeah. and really reflect on what what should be better. You know, they're too busy. They got another patient in the next room. And, there's and, and a lot of the people who have put forward those quality metrics that have made, I think, practice very painful were people who did not see patients that much and did not have that experience. And... Um, they're so easy that they think, oh, we just add this thing, add this thing. And they don't know what it's like when you actually have a busy day of clinic. There's no space to add anything. I got to do the things that matter, and I don't have time to be doing extra crap. Yeah, well, there's so there's so much now. I mean, there's yeah. so much checkbox stuff and, um, and, and so much frustration among clinicians, among sort of non-clinician managers and dashboards and all these tools that are supposed to make us more efficient, but appear to just be sort of a, a burden, a, a massive layer of administrative waste. Yeah. <laughs> I would say brought to characterize the physician perspective on that, you know, where <laughs> we're doing a lot of measurement that's not helping us right now. And I, but there's been some really nice, thoughtful work about how to, how to pull back from sort of quality improvement, quality measurement piece where that's been really wasteful yeah. while retaining the pieces that have kept us from, you know, doing wrong site surgery and yes. having anesthesia machines where the knobs all turn the right direction. And, <laughs> right, right, you know, right, right, like, right. Like simple quality met improvement that really does. Yeah, yeah. that had yeah. like a big, big impact. Like we don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose the process of trying to think about how to make our practice better. But by kind of the sort of reductionist drive to make everything into a little checkbox, um, We've lost a lot and made practice really hard, and we, we need to roll it back. Well, I'm very glad to, to know that people like you are out there thinking about it, and I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and taking us through your thoughts on this. And I thought um, you're very fair to them. I mean, I think you did a very fair job because I think although you're critical of them, you did give them some credit. I'm less fair to them uh, because they annoyed me more. Uh, or maybe I'm just more prone to being annoyed. Uh, but, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, there's a lot of things we just nobody disagrees about, right? Nobody's disagreeing that we shouldn't listen to patients. It's just some no. of it, you know, it's as you, as you put it well in the beginning, which was that um, 
it can be irksome to others when someone comes along and acts like they have discovered something that there is actually a long, rich tradition of. Yeah. Um, and that can be irksome. Um, I think uh, Rick, Richard Lehman said on Twitter, yeah. uh, Nijim discovers uh, rain is wet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I love Richard. And, um, yeah, he's good. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, listeners should know, he, Richard Lehman, um, had a very popular BMJ blog for, I think, about 20 years, and he just recently uh, passed the baton uh, to three worthy successors. Um, but it was really, it was a place I went every every week um, to catch up on on the week's journal articles first, uh, and then I would look at the journals themselves. Um, but he's a he's a credit to the field. He's a true a doctor's doctor, a true doctor. Yep, agreed. Dr. Sam Edwards, it's a pleasure to have you on plenary session. We'd love to have you again. Maybe next time we'll bring you back and have you talk about some of the work you do. I know we had Brian Chan come on a few weeks ago, and he talked a little bit about some of the work. Yeah, sounds yeah. great. But uh, thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Vinay. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, plenary session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>